Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some films uh, or some comedies of Ealing Studios, as recommended by Gavin Mevius of The Mixed Reviews, and this week's episode, I'll be talking about the 1951 film, The Man in the White Suit. Hopefully, we don't have an audience during this episode, as I was preparing to start recording, there was a little bit of percolating in my old friend and roommate pre-war radiator, um, so let's hope that he decides to keep quiet and that my dulcet tones will loothe, loothe him, soothe him into um, a long and um, restful uh, peace while we try and record this episode on the man in the white suit which i found absolutely delightful i know i used the term delightful a bunch of times while i was describing the last film kind hearts and cornets but this one uh, I'm, I'm making it delightful in bold and italics and underlined because i i won't say that i i love this film but this was such a good time um it, it sort of did everything that i think kind hearts and cornets did well in terms of its uh, themes and its approach to exploring those themes, but it also, um, for me, was a little bit more enjoyable because of how laugh-out-loud funny I thought it was, and that's not to say that um, laugh-out, or films that make you laugh-out-loud are better or more valuable than something like Kind, Heart, uh, kind Hearts and Cornets, which is a little bit more reserved and dry. They're both incredibly valuable on their own in their own way, but this one I just, I found myself um, laughing out loud a lot, and not because it, it was funnier objectively or better, but just because of the the type of humor um, that it, it it had is something that I that I respond to um, more, and I'll, I'll get into in, into a little bit. Um, but let's start at the beginning and say that I, I was, I was, I think predisposed or inclined to like this film from the very beginning because of how its opening few seconds and opening few shots reminded me of Billy Wilder. And that's a weird thing to say because Billy Wilder was, you know, yes, he was, or he uh, had his fair share of comedic films, um, but this, you know, Kind Hearts and Cornets also came out in 1951, uh, I believe, no, Sunset Boulevard wasn't until 1955, um, but, 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 uh, alright, so sorry, I, I'm, I'm speaking my thoughts here without kind of being coherent about them, so let me step back and say that I was reminded of Billy Wilder, specifically Sabrina and The Apartment, uh, which, is, this is why it's weird, is because those films would not come out until after, uh, the Man in the White Suit would, and I don't know if Billy Wilder ever saw any of the comedies from Ealing Studios. I, if he did, I don't know if he liked them or respected them, but I see, um, at least in this opening, some similarities in their approach to their material in how it's immediately kind of setting the tone for what is at stake here, um, and specifically because... Uh, the Man in the White Suit, I keep wanting to call it Kind Hearts and Cornets, and maybe it's because there's there's sort of a, a, a nice little flow and rhythm to that, and The Man in the White Suit is 
not that, but anyway. Um, but the man in the white suit starts out the first three shots, and, and I'll post the pictures uh, of these on the I Do Movies Badly Facebook page in case you need sort of a reminder of what it looks like. But the first three shots are of industry, and it starts out with voiceover, kind of, of, of the guy who, who runs the textile factory from which Alec Guinness will later uh, be fired once the, the, um, the suit fails. Uh, but he, he's talking about how you know things have finally kind of gotten back to normal after the, the, the big hullabaloo, the big controversy, if you will. And you sort of have this man talking about the importance of the textile industry while you have these three shots, which are very industry-heavy. The opening one is all these locomotives just pouring smoke out into the air. Uh, you have this kind of, uh, it's not an assembly room, but it's a lot of people kind of working at machines, which was very reminiscent of later on what Billy Wilder would do in the in the apartment in that opening shot of everybody sort of working at their little machines, you know, that, that, that production design, which eventually won the Oscar, in which you actually have smaller people and smaller props in the background to kind of show this vast expanse of, of, of soulless kind of corporate culture. And then uh, a man who's going you know, walking through these humongous machines, kind of inspecting them. You just have these three shots that are that come in relatively quick succession, which kind of key you into, this is what we're dealing with. We are dealing with industry. And since it is a Ealing Studios film, and specifically an Ealing Studios comedy, we're going to be dealing with this industry, and we're going to be poking fun out of it. And so... With that context in mind, not just what they're doing, but then also these visuals, it kind of keys you into um, what they're doing. What What is at stake here uh, in terms of emotionally, but perhaps not narratively, because we haven't met the Alec Guinness character yet. Um, Sidney Stanton is his name. Did I Can I read my own handwriting? Sidney Stratton? Um, I should probably actually look this up for a minute. Sorry. Uh Sydney Stratton, I apologize. Uh, but Sydney Stratton, I, I cannot read the notes that I took <laughs> to comment on this episode. Um, but since we haven't met him yet, we're not really sure of what the um, emotional stakes are. But we know kind of the, 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 the field that we're going to be playing on. And that works so well later on in Sabrina and the Apartment, um, specifically the visuals in comparison with the voiceover because of it. it did the same thing it sort of set you up in the sense of this is the world we're playing in and this is the attitude that the characters have towards this world if you remember in billy wilder sabrina you have uh the aubrey hepburn character uh who is talking about the possessions that her wealthy family owns and before we even see a person or a character we see things we see items we see the cars, we see the house, we have uh, the, the, the pond that has a goldfish named George. And so it's sort of, we sort of are immediately keyed into like, okay, the wealth here is the defining factor of these characters. We know the kind of people we're going to meet. In the apartment, you obviously have uh, Jack Lemon, who is kind of giving the voiceover, which is about statistics, insurance statistics, um, people getting into accidents and that sort of thing. And, and, it, and that's set to this background of the metropolis of New York City and all this hustle and bustle and vehicles. And then the camera kind of panning into that window when you see him working at his desk. And we see, we see okay, there's a dehumanizing factor that's going to be a, a thread through this film. And in here, at the beginning of The Man in the White Suit, you have that same thing. Textile, industry, 
this is the driving force behind all these people. And because we're going to be satirizing it, you know what the attitude is generally going to be towards these larger themes. So that's a, a great way to start a film. That's a great way to kind of, uh, without doing too much, kind of immediately keying your audience into this is what this film is going to be about. This is what we're going to be talking about. And I love that. Um, and then, of course, um, shortly after all that happens, we are introduced to Alec Guinness's character, Sidney Stratton. Now that I know it's Stratton and not Stanton or Staten. Um, and his attitude further enhances not just that idea, but also the idea that Ealing has set up of um, the common man versus the establishment. Because we eventually learn that he is... Um, yes, he's a brilliant young research chemist um, who, uh, and a former Cambridge scholar, uh, Cambridge scholarship, Cambridge, sorry about this, brilliant young research chemist and former Cambridge uh, scholar recipient who has to work as a janitor. Um, and, and, I, and I guess, sure, there, there are valid reasons why he um, has been fired from so many positions. I believe he's worked at six tile, uh, six or been fired from six textile, it's kind of a tongue twister, six textile factories at the time of, um, well, he, uh, at the time of, of this, this part when we see him, when we are entered into his story. And that's because he is using company money to fund his own experiments. So there is a good reason, I guess, that he has been fired. But it's still, you have this idea that he is a young man who is brilliant who is deserving of um being in a higher class than he's in or if not a higher class and at least a, a better life situation than he is currently in but he's being held back from from that by someone or by something um and something which is an establishment and, and, and in this case it happens to be this textile industry um and, and we we see very early on He's clearly smarter than everybody around him. He's clearly smarter than what should be his co-workers, but who are kind of his higher-ups. Um, and that's not just uh, exemplified through the way that he talks, but also just in, in, in his attitude in contrast with the people of the attitude that is around him. Um, there, there's, there, there's not just the, um, the two scientists who can't really figure out or who are mistaken when it comes to labeling the different parts of the new electron microscope, which comes in, and he is whip snap with that in regards to it and he's fascinated by it too you see the 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 kind of gleam in his eyes when he's looking over this new piece of equipment but also there's one of these scientists and it only happens twice but he's drinking his own solution <laughs> and he's always kind of caught off guard when someone calls his name and he's right in the middle of trying to sip whatever he has in his his flask or his beaker whatever you want to call it <laughs> it's just this idea of very it's not even subtle, but it's very simplistically done that you don't need to write uh, a bit of dialogue where it explains how, you know, how these co-workers are dumb or, or give uh, a Sydney a, a monologue about how he is better than everyone, although that the film does do that in, in an interesting little twist of a way, and I'll get to that shortly. But you just sort of have this idea of you have two brief scenes in which you have a guy who is drinking whatever is in his solution or whatever is in his his equipment 
And then you have Alec Guinness, who is correcting these other scientists about the parts of an electron microscope. And with those two little moments right there, we immediately know what kind of character he is, and we immediately sort of know the environment in which he's working. It's it's a wonderful, simplistic piece of, of writing and directing. And then, of course, we do, as I said, we do have a scene where he is... Um, talking to his boss, resigning because of how smart he is. But then in in a wonderful bit of comedic reveal, we see that um, then there's a cut of someone walking in. We see that he's just talking to himself in a bathroom mirror. It's so simple and it's so effective because once again, we learn more about his character through that comedic timing, through uh, a simple little writing exercise of revealing his character and how that is directed uh, um, by, sorry, I have to look up the director's name again, Alexander McKendrick, by um, what McKendrick does with the camera of making it seem like he is having a, a very important confrontation by framing him in such a way where he's close up and he's very stern and he's looking off the camera. And then by having that cut away to someone else coming in and then the cut back to him standing in front of a mirror, it's such an easy but effective way of kind of revealing who his character is, um, what he is incapable himself of actually doing and also making you laugh. And that's so wonderful and it's uh, so effective. Um, And it also speaks to the talent of Alec Guinness as a comedic actor. I mean, uh, for lack of a better word, he was or had to be a bit flamboyant in uh, Kind Hearts and Cornets or at least kind of a little bit hammy or, or over the top to display, display, to portray eight different characters, all of the family line. And in this one, he is... He's kind of more reserved. He's a bit meek, and he does a lot of his expressing through how he is holding back the things he doesn't say and how you can see in his face that he's sort of not even torn and conflicted, but uncertain of how to respond and what to say in certain situations. Um, and it's it's interesting because as his character goes along, as he you know, eventually uh, creates uh, this this ultra-white fabric which um, can resist stains because it doesn't absorb any dyes and, and how it glows in the dark because it's slightly radioactive in order to kind of get that brilliant, um, almost otherworldly whiteness. As he goes along with that, um, we see his pride and his confidence sort of increasing, and he eventually gets to a point where, similar to Lewis in Kind Hearts and Coronets, he's... He, he's so focused on his rightness that what he's doing is the right and or best thing to do that he almost doesn't seem capable of recognizing how wrong he might be. And that makes sense for both of the characters, for Lewis because he was rather um, dry and playing the part of the, the aristocrat who is above everyone who kind of starts believing his own lie about how he deserved uh, or how it was uh, a worthy cause to kill eight individuals, although he actually only killed six. Um, and the same thing with um, Sidney here. He believes that the invention of this fabric is important. It is, is important not just for him, but for the world. He believes it so much that he doesn't seem capable of seeing the other side of the equation. Because at first... He is the common man who is fighting against the establishment. And at first, the establishment is, is, is something we're very much on board with him fighting against because the establishment is industry, is the textile industry who is run by these 
older, wealthier men who all they can think about is profit for themselves. And they want him to sign the rights of the fabric over to them. They don't want him to profit. They want to be the ones to profit out of it. Although, it's for not entirely a terrible reason, um, which also then sort of... um, Similar to, once again, how Lewis's character sort of, or Louis's character sort of, de- I don't want to say degraded over time in Kind Hearts and Coronets, but certainly as it went along, we sort of um, started realizing less and less that this man was a, a, a likable person. Um, it's the same thing that happens to Sidney, because as it goes along, he's not just upsetting the establishment, the, the, the capitalistic, you know, robber barons of the, of the textile industry. Um... He also starts upsetting the people who were kind of originally on his side. The, the, you know, to put it simplistically, the good guys in the story, the union workers, the other common men and women like himself, the ones who are frequently and often at the whims of their rich bosses. There's a, a very brief exchange, but it's also a very important one in regards to keying into the attitudes of the characters involved that when, um, after Sidney gets fired from... The first job and ends up uh, working at the second one where he eventually will create the the white fabric. Um, he's having a conversation with a female coworker where um, once the bell rings for tea time, he would rather keep working. Um, and she says she says something effective like, "Every you know, take tea, take tea. We fought for this." Um, and it, and it's that idea of like even this the smallest simplistic like nothing things they had to fight for that they had to fight for just a a 10 minute break to drink tea they are the common men and women just like he is the common man and there's sort of supposed to be some solidarity but then as he goes along in this pursuit where he gets so caught up in this is right and this is what he should do and has sort of a, a right to do um he ends up upsetting them as well because there is this not insignificant fact that if you create this fabric that cannot be torn, that cannot be stained, that cannot ever get dirty, why would you ever buy another suit again? And that's just not, excuse me, that's not just going to hurt the rich bosses, because if they're not selling suits, then they're not making money. It's also going to hurt the common men and women, because if they're not selling suits, if the company isn't selling suits, they're not making suits, so they're not working either. And so, as the film goes along, we have this interesting little turn in which we find that Sidney almost becomes, I don't want to say the antagonist, but, but Sidney almost kind of becomes his own worst enemy by not sort of realizing that by fighting the establishment, he sort of ended up fighting everyone because it also is there there's this horrible truth that sort of like the establishment has control over everything and everybody i mean if we live in a we we live in a mostly capitalist driven society and those that trickle down from the top it, it, it 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 touches everything and so what might have started as a noble cause and i guess you could even argue that what he's doing even up to the end is noble but he's not aware of the victims or the consequences that are, that's going to come about, uh, come about, come ab- about from his pursuit, um, and what keeps us invested in this story, despite that, what keeps us invested in the story, what keeps us invested in 
Sydney as a character is, I think, how funny this film is and the levity it brings to this situation. I mean, I, I believe I said this during Kind Hearts and Coronets that with this, with a, a different twist on it or, you know, or with a different director, you know, or a different direction from McKendrick, this could have been a serious film. This could have been a drama. And so I keep thinking about how um, when I was talking to Gavin, he was kind of saying that these films were sort of lumped in or often associated with kitchen sink realism. Because even though this is a science fiction film, even though this is a film about something which can never happen, a, a man that invents a radioactive material which uh, makes a, an unterrible, unstainable fabric, there is emotional realism and societal realism in sort of how industry, capital, the establishment sort of has almost irrevocable control over everything and how what affects the top is also going to trickle down and negatively affect the people who are at the bottom as well. There's a realism to that. And just because we're laughing at it doesn't mean that it's not truthful. Um, but but it's also the it's also the, the superficial comedic things like I talked about before with with uh, Sydney kind of looking in the mirror and and having his serious speech that we eventually realize he's only talking to himself. This film is very funny. This film is written very well and directed very well um, in a way that kind of optimizes the the laughs for the well optimizes the laughs. I I can't really add much uh, much else to that. Um, and it's stuff like how um, how kind of slapsticky this film gets. Um, there's, there's sort of a, a kineticism to this, especially later on in the film, once people are literally chasing after Sydney, trying to get the suit off of him. There's, I don't want to say a Three Stooges element to it, but there certainly are pratfalls and slips and falls and, and that sort of thing. And, and even the way that editing is used and how the dialogue is used, how, how a piece of dialogue will set up then a the, that will be the setup and the payoff will be then visual specifically i'm thinking of when sydney um sydney is, is trying to confront um alan burnley uh at his at his home and and he's very vehemently saying like you'll never <laughs> you'll never get me to to leave this house and then he is literally thrown out of the house in the very next shot <laughs> it's sort of this idea of like there's a setup you're never going to get me to leave this house. And then the payoff in the next shot, he is literally out of the house. It's so funny. Um, and, and because we can keep laughing and because the film can keep moving along at, at its brisk pace, I mean, it's less than an hour and a half. It's like, a, I think, an hour and 25 minutes this movie is. Um, it gets in, it, it gets its job done, and it gets out, and it moves along incredibly quickly. And that's much easier to get involved in that. Um and because of, of how it moves like that, how everyone sort of acts like that, it's it sort of makes everyone look absurd. Everyone in this film is absurd. And by having that approach and by us as the, as the viewers kind of seeing that and seeing like everyone in this is absurd, no one is really right, everyone is, is a little bit crazy, um, it, it does go a long way to the thing of like we are, you know... As we've talked about, this film is not condemning anything. This film is not trying to tear down anything. But this film is trying to sort of make things a little bit easier through relation and through catharsis by having you kind of laugh at it. 
um, by having you laugh at the truth of what you're seeing. And that's, um, I've, I've taken some improv comedy courses and there's, uh, there's this one scene or, or this one, uh, type of improv, um, uh, called the expansion. And what the specific instruction is in the expansion is to not make things funny is to just have two people have a conversation. Don't make it gimmicky. Don't play a game. Don't go for a joke. Just be two people sitting there and talking. And that sounds counterintuitive, but at the same time, you'll sort of, uh, audiences will eventually realize that there's a relation going on. There's, and it's the relation which, 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 which brings about the comedy. Um, and by sort of seeing something that you can relate to and laughing at it, that kind of brings you into a community. It kind of makes everyone on the same team. And this, the man in the white suit does that. It, it sort of makes everyone absurd. It kind of, we can laugh at everything. We can feel a little bit better about the world because you sort of realize we're all in this together, basically. Um, and so there's a, uh, I, I think a heart in this movie that um, was not necessarily in Kind Hearts and Coronets, and I don't think that um, that's a... I don't say that to be derogatory towards Kind Hearts and Coronets. As you remember, I enjoyed that film as well. But this one is just... It's taking a different approach because it has a little bit more of a, of a, of a, of a narrow focus in regards to what our main character is sort of fighting against. I made the argument um, that... Uh, in Kind Hearts and Cornets, Louis is fighting against the aristocracy by trying to do this, even though he is doing it by trying to become part of the aristocracy, or, or you know, he, he's sort of trying to tear down from the inside the thing that he's a, a part of. It, it's, um, but I could also see how how someone could watch that movie and be like, I don't, I don't really see uh, necessarily a correlation between what's going on and and and. Satirical look on the aristocracy, although I, personally I think it's very evident. Um, but this one has a bit of a narrow focus because of once again how the film started out, how visually those first three shots and that voiceover narration immediately cued us into this is what this film is going to be about. This is where all of our characters are going to be playing, and this is what's these are the stakes that are going to be involved in this movie. Um, and I think it's remarkably successful, and, and it's it's. Uh, another side of Alec Guinness as an actor that I think is absolutely wonderful. Um, and it, it's something that I, a film that I just absolutely enjoyed and, and caught myself laughing out loud many times because of how uh, sure its focus is and how effectively it's being pulled off um, by not just the, not just a McKendrick as the director, but also Roger McDougall who uh, wrote the screenplay adapting it from his own play um and in a little um inside baseball view of of nepotism um mckendrick and and mcdougall were i believe cousins as well so um i i absolutely adored this film uh this is one like kind arts and cornets i enjoyed uh but the man in the white suit is the kind that i would go back and watch again uh, because of how effective it was and how reminiscent it was of other films that i think also did what it was trying to do. Um, 
once again, I, I don't know if Billy Wilder ever saw Ealing, uh, Ealing Studio films. I have to imagine maybe at some point he was sort of exposed to them because its heyday was at the same time as sort of his heyday was as well. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to hear that he did see them and that he did have some type of respect for them. I mean, keep in mind, uh, Billy Wilder was a huge fan of comedy. Uh, Billy Wilder started out his career um, as a, a disciple of Ernst Lubitsch, who was uh, quite a notable um, comedic filmmaker as well. So um, if you want to uh, revisit The Man in the White Suit after this conversation, um, it is available for rental and purchase on Amazon, on Google Play, and Vudu. Um, sorry for anybody who um, solely gets all their purchases through iTunes. Um, you are going to be out of luck for this one. So um, that's it for The Man in the White Suit. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did or that you um, derived sort of the same meaning out of it as I did. But if you didn't, you can certainly let me know. Email me. It's always super easy at badly at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter excuse me, at Nolan Fixes Teeth. Uh, you can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly, both on BattleshipRetention.com and IDoMoviesBadly.Podbean.com. And this is something I was thinking about today I haven't said in a while. You can find me on iTunes as well, and you can leave reviews for the podcast there as well. I say every now and again that I'll go there and I'll check it out, and then I haven't done it in oof, over a year. But uh, you can find my stuff on Pod, on, uh, on Podbean, uh, of course, and on iTunes, and I'm assuming anywhere else that you can get uh, podcasts. But um, I would always love to hear from you, whether you agree with me, whether you disagree with me, uh, or whether you just want to talk about something else. Um, I enjoy doing this, and I enjoy having dialogue, and um, I enjoy reading comments. I, I try to respond to comments as soon as I as I possibly can, and Battleship Retention is probably the place, the best place to do that, um, because you can have the comments field in the individual episodes. So that um, wraps it up for the man in the white suit. Um, but as of this recording and posting uh, of this episode, it will be before Thanksgiving. So um, I do celebrate Thanksgiving. I will be going home in a couple of days to see uh, my parents. Um, to get together for a time of um, reflection and, as the name implies, giving thanks. So um, I, if you are celebrating as well, um, I hope that you have an absolutely wonderful and blessed Thanksgiving. If you are not celebrating, but you still do have a, a long four-day weekend because of many businesses being closed, I hope that you can relax, take it easy, uh, have a good time, watch some movies, watch some TV, uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there. Um, uh, I will, the, as of recording this, Crossing the Streams hasn't been posted yet for November, but I will be posting that soon on the ID Movies Badly Facebook page. So take a peek at that if you want to kind of get some recommendations as to what you should watch, um, new or expiring. A lot of stuff is expiring at the end of the month. A lot of good stuff. So, um, but yeah, I, I want everyone to have. Um, a wonderful Thanksgiving. I want everyone to have a, a wonderful life, to be completely honest with you. Um, and I know that as I get older, certainly it's harder to ignore and escape um, the uh, the truth of, you know, the historical truth of sort of um, what happened uh, early on in the establishment of this country in regards to um, uh, a lot of our uh, European ancestry that came over here and was... Um, not exactly as nice to the indigenous uh, peoples as our history books would have us believe. And so I know more and more people as I'm getting older who are 
if not refusing to celebrate Thanksgiving, then at least kind of making it a day that they dedicate to something else, um, a time of reflection on um, not just history, but also kind of where we've come as a, as a nation as well. And so really, listen, if you're the, the type of person who is vehemently against the celebration of this holiday, or if you're the type of person who just wants to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, wants to have some turkey, wants to just kind of sit in the glow of um, kith and kin, um, or if you're somewhere in between, you know, I, I want you to have a blessed rest of the month. I want you to have a blessed weekend. I want you to enjoy your life uh, as much as possible, to kind of center yourself, to be present, to sort of enjoy and be thankful for where you are, what you have, um, which, man, now that I'm getting into this, I'm sort of rambling and realizing that that might be a little bit insensitive to other people who who are not doing so hot, whether it be financially, whether it be uh, emotionally, whether it be mentally, whether it be all sorts of, th- or any type of other situation. Basically, I am thankful, and it's not just an introspective thing if I want to be just thankful and navel gazing in my own life, but I hope that my thankfulness can manifest itself in such a way that I want to return the blessings to other people, that I want other people to be able to be in a situation where they can be thankful to, even if they're not. So, um, listen, whether you celebrate or whether you don't, I am wishing for blessings upon you. Um, that may seem cheesy and sort of out of character with what I'm. <laughs> with one of the many things that I have talked about on this podcast, but that is genuinely the truth. Um, I hope everyone has a happy Thanksgiving. I hope everyone has a wonderful rest of the week, a wonderful rest of the month, um, a wonderful rest of the year, basically. So, um, but um, <clears throat> with Thanksgiving uh, coming up, that also means that next week is going to be the final week of Ealing uh, Studios Comedies. So be sure to tune in next week where I will be covering the Lady Killers and will hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 